So, um, we, well, first of all, I'm glad you're here. Thank you for being here at Seven Hills Fellowship. Uh, second of all, we are starting a new series today on the book of Ephesians. And so you can see our little slide up here that says Ephesians. And uh, some of you have read the book of Ephesians before. Others of you maybe haven't read it at all. You're completely unfamiliar with it. But essentially, what the book of Ephesians is or was, was a letter from the Apostle Paul. And so some of you guys have heard of the Apostle Paul. Um, He uh, wrote a lot of books and letters in the New Testament. And uh, one of the things that he did a really good job of is helping us sort of understand the implications of um, our faith in Jesus. And so that's, to a large degree, what's happening here in the book of Ephesians. It's almost like a little mini Romans. Romans is a a letter that Paul wrote. It's super thick, and it's full of theology. Ephesians is also really thick and full of theology. It's just a little bit shorter. When Paul wrote it, he was actually in prison in Rome. So it's probably written about 62 AD. He's been imprisoned in Rome. He's actually going to die in two years, which he doesn't know that. Um, And so he doesn't understand the implications of you know, his own situation, but what he does understand is that his earthly situation is troubling, right? I mean, he's under house arrest. He's getting ready to probably be beheaded, and so he knows that his earthly situation is troublesome, but what's interesting is, though he's in that earthly situation, he's actually really full of joy, and he's really full of hope, and the the purpose of this letter was really for him to say, hey, regardless of what your earthly situation is, you need to understand the spiritual blessings that you have in Christ. And that's sort of what he's writing to do, to, to communicate. Uh, probably who he's writing this to are Gentile Christians. In other words, these aren't Jewish people. These aren't people who've been particularly in the loop. They're a little bit out of the loop. And so part of what Paul is doing is he's saying, hey, Gentile Christians, by the way, here's what you need to know in, about who Jesus is and what he did when he died on the cross and what your faith in him achieves for you, how God operates. And then you need to understand how it is that you're called to live life. And so that's sort of the general idea of this book of Ephesians. It's ultimately Paul describing the riches and the blessings that, uh, that we have in Christ, particularly for this body of new believers who don't come from a Jewish background. Now I'm going to jump into Ephesians. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 14 today. And then really over the next several months, we're going to be unpacking the whole book. And so if you will, follow along with me. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. And if you don't have a Bible, that's okay. The words will be on the screen. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace, which he has lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. To be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. 
And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Let's take a moment and let's pray. Father, as we hear the words of Ephesians chapter 1, there are words in there which are scary to us. There are words in there which are troubling to us. There are words in there which we don't understand. And yet, Father, it's uh, the way that you're choosing to reveal your saving act uh, to those of us um, who didn't know you. And so, Father, I pray that as we read not only Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14 today, but as we read the entire book of Ephesians, that uh, not only may our eyes be open to who you are and how it is that you operate in our lives, but I pray that our eyes would also be open to who we are, um, not only who we are and who we were before you adopted us as your children, but also who we are now that we are adopted as your daughters and your sons. Father, I pray, um, as always, that you would be present in this room, um, that you wouldn't let anyone leave here today without having had an experience with you, uh, the Almighty God. We pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. I was at church one day, and the speaker that day was, um, was different. I just sat there with tears in my eyes, learning about this ministry that was revolutionizing the planet. I'm talking, of course, about Millennial International. The need is enormous. There are over 10 million millennials out there who have graduated with no work ethic, no job, no discernible skills at all, and they have expenses. Housing. Student loans. Credit card debt. And I didn't really realize the magnitude of the problem until I looked into the eyes of a millennial. And I saw that face with the, the dead, nothing's happening up here kind of thing. So I went out to the booth after the service and I talked with the guy and he really informed me about the devastation that's not being able to fund a millennial lifestyle. Core Power Yoga. Birch Box for Men. I looked over all the envelopes and my heart was really touched when I saw this one particular fellow that I, I just had to get more information about him. He was uh, Declan from Beverly Hills. I am an uh, aspiring photographer. I graduated college with an art degree, so obviously that puts me at a disadvantage. Volkswagen Jetta lease. Beard wax. Spotify premium. In his last letter, he wrote to me and said that his uh, weekend was, oh, how do you put it, um, totes lit fam. Literally have no idea what that means. Spin cycle membership. Pet food for my rescue dog. Uber's home from a pub crawl. A typical sponsorship program costs $29 a month. Millennial International is actually $2,900 a month. Yeah, it seems expensive at first, but when you see the need, it is so worth it. Okay. Let me just tell you to all of our millennial friends out there, that was not to poke fun at you. Just a little. Only a little, actually. But just kidding. Just kidding. Anyway. So clearly that's a joke, and again, I, I apologize if it offended anybody, but sort of what it was introducing there, it's, you know, it's sort of a spoof on Compassion International, where, you know, they have these tables, and there are, you know, pictures of children, and you go up and you choose a child for 
adoption. And so, of course, the spoof here is that that's what's happening with these millennials, that uh, some you know, you know, older gentleman who's really caring and whose heart has been touched sees the need and responds to the need by going and choosing one of these young men, in this case, Declan from Beverly Hills. Uh, by the way, you can find the rest of that little clip online, and uh, it's pretty humorous. Anyway, but in it, what he's doing is he's saying, I see the need, I see the brokenness, I see the desperation, and I'm here to choose you, to adopt you, and, uh, and to serve you, and to care for you, right? And so part of what's talking about or being talked about here in Ephesians chapter 1 is that very same idea that God looks at us, and uh, for those of us who are his children, he looks at us and he says, I want to choose you, I want to adopt you, right? I want to give you uh, my spiritual blessings, right? I want to take care of you, right? And so part of what we see here in this first passage of Ephesians is that we've been chosen by God for our good, but also for his glory. We've been chosen by God for our good, but also for his glory. Now, before we jump into this, Sam, let me back you up one slide, just do a black slide. Let me talk about this for a second. When we start saying words like chosen and predestined, everyone sort of tightens up a little bit, gets a little nervous, right? And so let me just say this. Part of the reason that we're going through this sermon series is because I don't want to hide what scripture teaches you. I don't want to claim to know more about this idea or this concept um, than I do, because the truth is it is a mystery. And one of the things that we talk about when you go through membership here at Seven Hills Fellowship is we say, look, we believe um, that uh, God is sovereign, but we also believe that we have human responsibility and freedom, and we don't know exactly how those two things coincide, but we also can't run or hide from what Scripture teaches about who God is and about how he calls us to himself. And one of the things that he talks about here in the book of Ephesians is he uses these words like chosen and predestined. And so let me just take two seconds and talk about what those words are. So it's a little etymology. Number one, this word chosen is taken from the Greek word, which is ek legomai. Ek meaning out, lego meaning to pick or choose. In other words, ek legomai means to pick or to choose or to pick out, to choose out, right? It just means that. It just does. How does that work? What is it based upon? What do we need to know about it? Not exactly sure. I'm going to tell you a little bit, at least refer back to what Ephesians chapter 1 says. Now, the second word that we see that pops up in the section of Scripture, verses 1 through 14 of Ephesians 1, is the word that's translated predestined. In Greek, it's pro-orizo, pro-orizo. The word or the prefix pro means before or in front of, right? And orizo is this word which means to determine, ordain, declare, or even mark out the boundaries, and so pro-orizo means to declare from above, foreordain, to mark out the boundaries ahead of time, or as it's uh, defined, it's to predestine, right? So this rocks us a little bit, because our number one value in America right now is freedom, individual freedom, right? That's our number one core value in America, the freedom to choose who we are in terms of gender, in terms of sexuality, in terms of the choices we make about life. And so this assaults that number one freedom. But if you think about it for just one second, I want you to think about the concept of this chosenness or predestinedness or adoption uh, that we typically hear about in Scripture. And if you think about it for a moment, nobody would argue that in the Old Testament God chose Abraham, right? Like we see that. Like we're okay with that in the Old Testament. Or that God chose the Israelites. Again, we're okay with that. We've seen it in the Old Testament. Or that God chose Moses, we know the story of the burning bush. Or that God chose Joseph, or that God chose Jacob, right? Again, all Old Testament. In the New Testament, few people would argue that Jesus chose the 12 disciples, right? That's, you know, unassailable, right? Or that he chose Paul on the Damascus Road. Paul was not looking for God. He was not looking for Jesus, and yet God said, I'm looking for you. And God called Paul to be his son, 
right? We have no doubt that Jesus sought out Zacchaeus and said, I must go to your house today, right? We have no doubt that Jesus told Nicodemus in regard to the Holy Spirit's role in salvation, that the wind blows wherever it pleases, that the Holy Spirit's like this wind that blows where it pleases. Psalm 139, David writes, and he says, your eyes saw my unformed body all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to pass or one of them came to be. The question is then, what have we been chosen for? What have we been chosen for? And that's really what this uh, first section of Ephesians talks about. The first thing that Paul says is that we must praise God because he has chosen us to be his daughters and sons. We must praise God because he's chosen us to be his daughters and sons. Again, part of what Paul is saying here is he's saying, look, the physical situation that you're in might be incredibly difficult, right? You might be poor. You might be broken. You might be abandoned. There, there might be all sorts of horrible things going on in your earthly situation. He's in jail, but he says we can still praise God because he's chosen us to be his daughters and sons. Look at verses 5 and 6. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Does that make sense? I mean, I did not write this, I promise you. This is uh, found in Scripture. It's Ephesians chapter 1. Part of what he's saying is he's saying that God's chosen us to be his daughters and his sons. Recently, there was an article that came out called Faces in the Light, written by a woman named Jill Caratini. And I'm just going to read this little section of an article because I think it's very interesting. Uh, But it's about um, adopting foster care children. So if you'll bear with me, we've got some pictures up on the screen, and I'll read the little section of her article. She says, or says this, in 2001, Diane Granito, that's her right there, founded the Heart Gallery, a unique program that uses photography to help find homes for older foster children, sibling groups and other children who are traditionally difficult to place with families. A prominent art gallery in Santa Fe, New Mexico, donated space where more than 1,000 people came opening night. The photos on exhibit were the end result of the photographer's attempts to coax out the unique personalities in hundreds of children, a great contrast to the typical photos attached to a child's file. They look like mug shots, said one of the photographers of the typical case photos. This is an opportunity to just portray them as kids In their environments, said another involved, we're treating this as a living, breathing project. Since its inception, the Santa Fe Project has inspired 120 more heart galleries across the United States. In some places, the adoption rate after an exhibit is more than double the nationwide rate of adoption from foster care. Such photography earns a description worthy of its roots. Photography in Greek means to write in light, to write in light. Those who work to find I've sat here in Starbucks copying these pictures. I was totally crying in the corner anyway. Those who work to find foster children, adoptive families, are used to rubbing up against the public perception that most foster children have serious emotional and behavioral problems. Sometimes, though, not always. It is an accurate perception, and a picture offered in a different light does not change the child it portrays, but an image of a troubled child at play does offer the accurate light of hope. Like what we see in this story, what we see in these pictures are children who are in desperate need of adoption. I love this story of adoption. Again, I, I, if anybody comes into Starbucks ever and I'm teary, it's like, I promise you I'm reading some article on this kind of thing. What's interesting is though this is a beautiful story of adoption, of these artists who are painting these children in a light to really 
to really show their uniqueness and to show their beauty and to show uh, their dignity, all those things which are true not only on an earthly plane but also on a spiritual plane, even though that's the story of their adoption, that's not the story of our adoption. That's not how God chooses us. God doesn't suddenly see us in a new light and go, oh, I didn't see that before. Right? I didn't realize your beauty. I didn't realize your dignity. He doesn't choose us because he sees that we're lovely. He actually makes us lovely because he's chosen us as his daughters and sons, right? I mean, if anything, Scripture goes out of its way to talk about Israel and, say, and God says, I didn't choose you because you were the biggest or the best. I chose you because you were the least, right? If you look at the people that God chooses throughout Scripture, they're always broken, right? They're always a mess. If anything, they're undignified. If anything, they're, you know, uh, devoid of any specialness whatsoever. They're just broken people, right? And that's how God chooses us. He doesn't choose us because of our beauty. He chooses us because of our need, right? Because we need him. We are in desperate need of adoption. And again, it doesn't say in this passage, it doesn't say that he chooses us to adopt us in accordance with seeing our potential. He doesn't say that. It doesn't say that he chooses us in accordance with, with him seeing our future faith. It doesn't say that. It says that he chooses us as daughters and sons in accordance with his pleasure and will. In other words, he looks at us and he desires to choose you. He desires to choose me as a daughter and a son. He chose us because it pleased him to do so. It says that he chose us in love, right? It says in love he predestined us for adoption to sonship. In other words, he looked at you and he loved you before you had anything to offer him. Because, not because of any beauty that you had in yourself, but rather because he simply desired to love you. And it goes on to say, by grace, and grace is always undeserved favor. He goes on to say it's freely or not under compulsion. And so if we believe what Paul is saying here, then what we believe is that God looks at us and sees us in our need and adopts us as daughters and sons. So the question for me, the question for you this morning is, do you believe, as Ephesians is teaching here, that God has adopted you not because of what you had to offer, but rather simply because he chose to adopt you in love, that he chose to love you, to offer you grace. You see, what you need to understand is you have been chosen for this. You've been chosen to be a daughter. You've been chosen to be a son. You've been chosen in love. All right, this leads me to our second point. We must praise God because he has chosen us for redemption. We're going to look at a little chunk of verses here. So again, we, he has chosen us for redemption in him, that is in Christ. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. When you believed, you are marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Now, we kind of have an idea of redemption, right? Some of you know the classical redemption of being bought out of slavery, that would have been obviously something that was incredibly present in the first century church. But those of us in our culture also understand the idea of redemption where we take something that's been broken, right? Where we take something that's been devastated, when we take something that's been damaged, and we make it beautiful again, right? The DeSoto Theater, our building next door, right? There are all these ways in which we understand redemption is taking something that's broken, but we make it more beautiful. Recently, uh, the Wall Street Journal had an article called Out of His Shell, and in it, the author, uh, Pellegrini, uh, talks about this Japanese art form, and the Japanese art form is called kintsukuri, right? I don't speak Japanese, so I'm guessing that's the translation. 
Uh, but what it is essentially is this. I'm going to read a little section of, uh, of Pellegrini's article. There's a Japanese word, kintuksuri, that means golden repair. It's the art of restoring broken pottery with gold so that the fractures are literally illuminated, a kind of physical expression of its spirit. As a philosophy, kintsukuri celebrates imperfection as an integral part of the story, not something to be disguised. The artists believe that when something has suffered damage and has a history, it becomes more beautiful. Just let that sink in for a second to those of you in this room who have been damaged. Let that sink in for a second to those of you who have suffered, right? Let that sink in for those of you in the room this morning who have cracks and who have been shattered and who have been broken, that it becomes more beautiful. In Kintsukuri, the true life of an object or a person begins the moment it breaks and reveals that it is vulnerable. The gap between once pristine appearance and its visible imperfection deepens its appeal. It makes it more beautiful, right? We kind of all know that intuitively. We know intuitively that our stories and God's grace and mercy in our life actually makes us more beautiful. At least we know it on a theoretical level. And we maybe believe it in the lives of other people. That's why great love stories in movies or in books always involve some form of redemption, taking someone who's broken and making them whole, right? In Kintsukuri, redemption is brought about by liquid gold which flows into the cracks and broken places and devastation of an object and makes it even more beautiful than it was before. In Christianity, redemption is brought about when the blood of Christ covers over and restores our brokenness, making us not only restored and beautiful, but more perfect, more fully human than we ever dared to believe, right? Than we ever dared to believe. You've been chosen for this. You've been chosen for redemption. Do you believe, do you believe that that redemption is not just possible in great stories? Do you believe that that redemption is not just possible in great movies, that it's not just possible in great poems, but do you believe that that redemption is possible for you, that God can take your brokenness, your devastation, your wounds, and your cracks, and he can make you even more beautiful. It doesn't deny the reality of the pain. It doesn't deny the reality of the cracks. It doesn't deny the, re- the reality of the rebellion. But what it does mean is that you have been fully redeemed, that you might be even more beautiful. You have been chosen for this, right? You've been chosen for this. The third thing we see in this passage is that we must praise God because he's chosen us to be holy and blameless. He's chosen us to be holy and blameless. Listen to verses 3 and 4. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Key words in this passage have to be holy and blameless. The idea of being holy is being set apart. I wear this wedding ring on my finger, so when I am sitting in Starbucks, when I am sitting at Swift and Finch, when I am standing on the sidelines of a soccer game, I am set apart. I belong to Krista Pierce. I belong to someone else. God has made us holy. He has set us apart, and we are his. We are holy. He's chosen us for this. We are blameless, he says, pure, without fault, without flaw. He sees us as perfect, holy, and blameless. There's a story which many of you are familiar with, even if you haven't read it. It's called Don Quixote. 
It's uh, by an author named Miguel, Miguel de Cervantes. And those of you who, has, who know the story, you know that it's uh, Don Quixote and Sancho Panza, his little buddy on the donkey there. And, uh, and commentators go back and forth about whether or not Don Quixote was crazy or whether or not he was a hero and a dreamer. Thank you, David Slade. And, uh, but what he does is he rides around on his horse and he fights battles, but he also defends the honor of the woman that he loves. We're introduced to the woman that he loves in this story. Her name is Dulcinea. And I'm going to read a couple sections of the story. The novel tells us the exact moment when Don Quixote decides on the woman who will be his great beloved. It's a decision he makes. Her name was Aldonza Lorenzo, and this was she whom he thought he might entitle to the sovereignty of his heart. Right? Very poetic in its literature, but it says that he looks at this woman whose name is Aldonza Lorenzo, and this was she whom he thought he might entitle to the sovereignty of his heart. He's going to give his life to this woman. It then goes on to say her name is Dulcinea. He gives her a nickname. He gives her a, a new name. He goes on to say her name is Dulcinea. Her country, El Toboso, a village of La Mancha. Her rank must be at least that of a princess, since she is my queen and lady. And her beauty superhuman, since all the impossible and fanciful attributes of beauty which the poets apply to their ladies are verified in her, for her hairs are golden, her forehead Elysian fields, her eyebrows rainbows, her eyes suns, her cheeks roses, her lips coral, her teeth pearls, her neck alabaster, her bosom marble, her hands ivory, her fairness, snow. He goes on and on, and he describes the beauty of Aldanza. And what's interesting is throughout the story, he meets people, and he says, don't you agree that Dulcinea is the most beautiful woman in the world? And people never know who he's talking about. Like, who are you talking about? They don't know who she is. And when they refuse to acknowledge that she's the most beautiful woman, he fights them <laughs> to defend her honor, because they're clearly wrong. They're clearly offending her nobility. They're clearly offending her beauty, right? They have no idea who, who he's talking about, right? Until one day, Pancho Sancha, his little buddy on the donkey there, finally realizes, oh, you're talking about Aldanza, right? And this is what he says about Aldanza. He says, by the mass, by the Catholic mass, she's a notable, strong-built, sizable, sturdy, manly lass, <laughs> Right? Like, all, clearly, Pancho Sanz is like, there is some sort of discrepancy between the way you see her and the way that everybody else sees her, because everybody else sees her as rather manly, right? She might make a good farm wife, but she's not the princess you're talking about. But you see, that's the beauty and the power of this story, right? This story. In Don Quixote's sight, Dulcinea is the most beautiful woman in the world, and he'll fight anyone else who says otherwise. In his sight, she's perfect, and he'll fight anyone else in the world to protect her honor, her dignity. In Don Quixote's sight, she is the most honorable and noble of all women, and he will fight anyone who says anything else. You see, the key phrase in verse 4 is that God chose us to be holy and blameless in his sight. In his sight. We see our sin, but God sees us as blameless. Right? We see our sin, 
he sees us as blameless. Others see our ugliness, but God sees us as beautiful. It's in his sight. Those closest to us see our flaws, but God sees us as perfect. For those of you who trust in Christ alone, you are perfect, holy, and blameless in God's sight. You have been chosen for this, right? You've been chosen for this, to be holy and blameless in his sight. This morning, we have tables around the room with um, bread and wine and bread and grape juice. And these tables um, that we, we call this meal the Lord's Supper, or some people call it communion. But what this meal represents ultimately is the gospel. And what we've talked about today, if you've been listening, is the good news, right? It's the gospel, right? It's that that God has accomplished our redemption through his son, Jesus, and that because Jesus died on the cross for us, his, his body and his blood sacrificed for us, that the cracks of our brokenness are healed so that when now God looks at us, he sees us as holy and blameless, right? We see this bread and this wine as the price of redemption to buy you back not only from slavery, but to buy you back from sin and brokenness and from death, right? We see that this bread and this wine are reminders that we've been adopted as daughters and sons and that we're invited to sit. At the family table with our Heavenly Father. That's what this reminds us of. And so what I would invite you to do today is you think about this meal of bread and wine, that you might remember the truths that it proclaims to you, that it declares to you, blameless, holy, redeemed, daughter and son, right? And that whatever it is that the evil one tries to say to you otherwise, right, that that God's voice is louder through this bread and wine. That whatever it is your own guilt and your own psychology tries to tell you today, that this bread and wine would be louder, that God would speak to you that he would proclaim to you that you are blameless, that you are holy, that you have been redeemed for all time, right? that you are his daughter, that you are his son. There's nothing you can do to make God love you any more or any less than he does right now simply because he has chosen you to be his child. This meal speaks of forgiveness, of redemption, and of blamelessness. Hear God's voice through this meal. I'm going to read the words of institution now, and then I'm going to ask you to simply take a moment and that you dwell upon your sin, but the forgiveness that's offered in Christ. I also want to remind you that if if you haven't come to this point of trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, that you just simply sit back and watch the children of God as we sit down at the family table of our Father. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take a moment and pray. Father, I pray that your spirit would take the truth of the gospel and would um, just derive it through our ears down through our brains, into our hearts, that uh, the gospel wouldn't simply be something that we walk over to our closet and pull out and put on as an act of will, but Father, that this message of redemption and blamelessness and holiness and love, that, uh, that it would be something that grows in us from the inside out and changes 
how we allow ourselves to be seen, how we see ourselves, Father. I pray that as we um, take this meal of bread and wine today, that we would remember that you see us um, as perfect. You see us as your dulcinea. And so, Father, we pray these things now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.